Okay, this morning we're starting chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians, and uh, we'll be starting in verse 1, but let's open with prayer this morning. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the things that we can learn from it. We, we thank you uh, for the blessings it brings to us and the confidence that we can have in you as a result of, of knowing your promises and knowing your character. Lord, we just pray that you'll bless our time now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I think for uh, con- uh, get our context, we'll, we'll go ahead and read the chapter, chapter 5. And uh, as we read around, just read one verse. What it, what we start the front and work your way back. Read, read just one verse. If you want to pass, just say pass. That's okay. okay so when you want to start with verse 1. It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out that put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ on the one who has been doing this. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you are as you really are for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed therefore let us keep the festival not with the old bread loaded with malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning the sexually immoral in this world, or the greedy and swindlers are idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So we've been reading and studying in the first four chapters about the Corinthian church had factions. There were certain men who had basically rejected Paul's authority and his teaching and they thought they knew better on their own. That's where he, he calls them arrogant over and over again. Um, and he's been talking about God's wisdom versus human wisdom because they were basically following the ways of the world, the human wisdom. And so they had factions going on. And, and, and Paul has been confronting that for these whole first four chapters. And the end of chapter four, um, he points out that, well, you know, you're going your own way because you think I'll never come back to the church again. And he says, I will come back. And 
And if you need, a, <laughs> say, a good beating, <laughs> I'll give it to you. <laughs> um, basically, uh, he'll come and see if the, you know, do their words have power or are they just empty words? But uh, verse 21, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Are you going to repent and submit so I can uh, treat you as a father treats their son uh, in gentleness? Or are you going to be disobedient and as a father has to discipline his son with a rod, do I have to do that to you? And so getting into chapter 5, it looks like it's almost a complete change of subject matter. Um, you know, we've got this sexual problem. But the, but the really point that he makes in chapter 5 is it's, the, it's a continuation of the same thing. Uh, verse 2, you have become arrogant. That's what we've been dealing with for the last couple chapters. Now, he'll mention the sexual problem, but most of the chapter is not about that issue. It's about how does the church deal with it? How do the leaders deal with it? So let's start with verses 1 and 2. It's actually reported that there's immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned. Instead, in order that the one uh, who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. So we have this specific uh, sexual sin within the congregation. Um, and once you get past verse 1, he really doesn't talk about the sin anymore. Um, so he's, he's, he devotes the rest of the chapter, how do you deal with it? Now he's gotten this report, so he is in Ephesus when he writes this letter. He's gotten this report um, uh, of sexual immorality, and it says that someone has his father's wife. Now, this is not his mother. This is his father has another wife. Uh, you know, whether they, you know, I don't know if they practice polygamy there or not. Uh, perhaps his mother had died, his father had remarried. Uh, but this man has, is having a sexual relationship with her. Now, um, some of the commentaries say this phrase, has the father's wife, means that he's married her. So this man has married a woman who was formerly married to his father. You know, he may have died or divorced or what. Um, but in either case, you've, you've got the physical relationship there. And he says this, you know, even the Gentiles don't do this. He said, this is really bad. You know, all these pagans around you, they don't do this. Uh, and we've already talked about the reputation of Corinth. I mean, it was the Sodom of their day. Uh, it was a horrible sexually immoral city. And he says, even these people don't do what you're doing, what this guy is doing. So, um, uh, you know, this is really bad. Um, several commentaries cited Cicero. And I'm not really familiar with him. I think he was a Roman historian. He said, this was an incredible crime and practically unheard of in a Roman Empire, and it's illegal under Roman law. So 
That's what the unbelievers thought of it. And we also know that under uh, the uh, Mosaic law, it was illegal. Uh, it was a violation of Christian morality. So let's look back at Leviticus 20 and see what it says about it. Under the Mosaic law, Leviticus chapter 20. get there, would someone like to read verse 11 for us? Leviticus 20, verse 11. If there is a man who lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Okay, so this man is violating... Now, the Mosaic law did not apply in the church in Corinth, but this is what it said to do. What, what was the penalty? Death. Death. Death for both of them. Yes, this is serious. Uh, very serious. Um, now, there is an issue here. Uh, if a historic precedent. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 35. And Reuben, don't take this personally, because <laughs> we're going to talk about Reuben. <laughs> Genesis chapter 35. Uh, someone would like to read verse 22 for us. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Belhoff. And Israel heard of it. Okay. Look, okay, that's far enough. Okay, that's far enough from Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, so Reuben was Reuben was the firstborn son. He did this. Uh, would someone like to read verse 25 there in the same chapter? The sons of Rachel's servant Bilhah, Dan and Naphtali. Okay. So that's who she was. So. Reuben was the firstborn. His mother was Leah. Um, you know the story of Rachel and Leah? Okay, Rachel's uh, handmaid was Bilhah. So, and she was the mother of uh, Dan and Naphtali. So, you can see that there were issues in this family. <laughs> so, Reuben had slept with his half-brother's mother, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> this is incest, yeah. Um, now, at this time, there was no law. The Mosaic law hadn't been given yet. They were not put to death. Um, but it says, Israel heard of it. Israel and Jacob are two names of the same man. So he knew what had happened. And here it doesn't say that he did anything about it. But there were consequences. You know, God wasn't going to just let this slip. And neither was Israel. So let's turn to chapter 49 of Genesis. This is where uh, Israel blesses his sons. And does someone like to read verses 3 and 4? Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence. 
because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Okay. So this is not a like a curse, but it's a withholding of blessing. The, the firstborn had preeminence. And uh, Israel said, no, I'm taking that away from you. Let's turn to First Chronicles chapter 5. First Chronicles chapter 5. And would someone like to read verses 1 and 2? The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was the firstborn. But when he defiled his father's marriage bed, his rights as firstborn were given to the sons of Joseph, son of Israel. So he could not be listed in the genealogical record in accordance with his birthright. And though Judah was the strongest of his brothers and a ruler came from him, the rights of the firstborn belonged to Joseph. Okay. So here we see, you know, first part of Chronicles is lots of genealogies. And here you say, Reuben's a firstborn. Why doesn't he give the, why doesn't he get the double blessing, a double portion? And this explains it. That was given to Joseph. Um, Israel, or Jacob, adopted Ephraim and Manasseh as his own sons. They were not considered grandsons in the inheritance. They were considered as sons because Joseph got the double portion. Um, it also mentions uh, uh, Judah, that from him came the leader. Well, Reuben was supposed to be the leader. He was the firstborn. He was supposed to be the leader. So the leadership went to Judah. And the other thing that the firstborn was supposed to be was he was supposed to be the spiritual leader. So who was given the spiritual leadership of the people of Israel? Levi. Levi. So he lost any privilege of being a firstborn because he had done this. So you know, he wasn't put to death as the law required, but there was consequences. You know? And so you see, um, there's other things. Uh, Simeon and Levi had, were the ones who, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the name, when this Diana got raped, they, just, they killed all the people in um, Shechem, I think it was Shechem. And so when it came time to divide the land, they were not given entire portions of the land. They were given cities, but not a block of land. And so we, you know, you can see throughout the history that God did uh, deliver consequences for the sins of the of these leaders in the in the um, nation of Israel. Speaks that the sin always has consequences. Right. Sin. It may be forgiven, but it always has consequences. It has consequences. Okay, so we see what this sin is. Um, it violates Judeo-Christian morality. It violates Mosaic law. It violates Roman law. What did the Galatian or Corinthian church do about it? Nothing. Nothing. They did nothing. Um, and Paul says uh, in verse 2, you have not mourned. Well, the word mourn means to grieve. Uh, sometimes it's even translated as wailing. 
Well, this horrible thing has happened. They should have all been wailing and grieving over it. Let's look at Luke chapter 6, where we see the same word used. Yeah, the same mourn is kind of, it tones it down quite a bit. Luke chapter 6, which someone like to read verse 25. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Okay, there's our word mourn. Paul is saying, you should be mourning over this. You should be weeping over this horrible sin within the body of Christ. Uh, but you don't do anything. We'll see a more, let's turn to a more pertinent uh, use of the word in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul speaks of himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And verse 21, the last verse of the chapter, would someone like to read that for us? I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Okay. So here you've got a church formed in this city that had all kinds of sexual problems, and they needed to repent of that. And Paul says, you know, I'm afraid I may come to you later and, and, and I, I'm going to weep and mourn because you haven't given these up. You haven't changed. Um, but they haven't mourned. Um, they decided to practice love and tolerance. And now there's nothing wrong with love and tolerance as long as it's biblical love and tolerance. Um, they don't want to be hateful. They don't want to judge another believer. Um, they just want to all get along and, and love each other and, and uh, just let it go. And let's, let's look at Revelation chapter 2. We have an, another example of this. Revelation chapter 2 and, and someone like to read verse 20 for us here. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Okay. <clears throat> so here's this woman in the church at uh, Thyatira. <laughs> She's leading them into sexual immorality. And God says, you tolerate her. I have this against you. You tolerate her. That's not right. There are sins that have to be dealt with. And this was one of them. Um, and how is this linked to arrogance? Basically, they are saying that um, their standards of morality are better than God's. God says, well, we need to judge this person. And they say, no, no, that's hateful. We're more loving than God is. We're more tolerant. Yes, we're more tolerant than God. And that's, that's pure arrogance to think. And um, whenever we, we think that we have, uh, that we're right and God's wrong is arrogant. Um, 
And that's one of the things I, I find myself reading through, like the Old Testament. I, I, I see things and I think, boy, this here doesn't look right to me. You know? <laughs> but, I, but I know God is the one who's right. I don't understand. Why is this, why is this righteous and just in God's eyes where it bothers me to see it? Um, there's a lot of brutality in things that, that God's uh, approved of in the Old Testament. And um, I have to go back and try to, now, why does this make sense? Why is this, why is this correct? I am not going to be so arrogant as to say God is wrong. I may feel that way, but I recognize it's because I don't understand. So, you know, we see this today. Uh, all the Christian churches that, or so-called Christian churches, they embrace homosexuality and sexual deviancy in the name of love. And if you defend God's righteousness uh, and, and condemn these sexual sins, well, you're called a hater or a homophobe or something. Well, this is... What? Intolerant, yes. Because their standard of morality is better than God's. You know, and um, I think another area, you know, is, is capital punishment. Um, you look at what God told Noah. So this is before the Mosaic Law. This was... Noah and his family was the whole human race. And God instituted capital punishment because human beings carry the image of God. When you kill or murder another human being, you are attacking God's image. It cuts to the very core of who we're created to be. And he says, that is worthy of death, which almost sounds like a contradiction, but, but that's the judgment. And yet today, oh, you know, this is... Uh, Cruel punishment. We can't do that. You know, it's, and so God, in a sense, is being condemned as being cruel. That is human arrogance. So that's how this arrogance ties in uh, to, to what they're doing here or what they're failing to do. So in verse 2, Paul goes on to say what should have happened, that this... Um, might this, the person who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. They were to be taken out of the church, excommunicated. And there's several reasons or consequences of, or for doing that. Um, first, this defends God's moral standards. Okay, this is a violation of God's law. We recognize that this is wrong because God says it is wrong, and so we are going to take an action. And that vindicates God's standards. We're not saying that we know better than God. God is right. Um, secondly, it, it protects others from the influence of the sin. And we read that verse in uh, uh, Revelation about this Jezebel. She was leading others into sin. So you've got to get rid of that bad influence. And we'll see that in, in verse 6. He talks about, uh, uh, do not know the little lump of leaven Leavens the whole lump, you know, so it, uh, sin spreads. Um, excommunicating this person also is obedience to Christ's instructions about discipline. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. This is our 
classic section on how to handle discipline. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, would someone like to read verses 15 through 17 for us? Okay, that last phrase is you separate. The Jews were to separate from the Gentiles. So here he's addressing, uh, still at this point, uh, the Jews, uh, not specifically the church, but this applies uh, to how we discipline in the church. But that last step is excommunication. And then the, uh, the fourth thing that um, we see about excommunication is that um, the true goal of this is not punishment, it's restoration. Uh, It's a way of helping a person be restored to fellowship in the church, to be restored to to the church. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is Paul's follow-up later in letter uh, and it, I think it deals with some of the issues that he, this deals with the response of the Corinthians to his first letter. So 2 Corinthians 2, would someone like to read verses 6 through 8 for us here? For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Okay. So here we have uh, a sinner who has repented, and he's telling the church, okay, he's repented. He, you know, welcome him back. That's what we want. You know, it's, it's not that, okay, you know, you were a sinner, and we're going to continue to treat you as a sinner, and we're going to, you know. Out forever. Out forever, yeah. You know, that's not the goal. Um, and this may be the man we're talking about here. You know, some of the commentaries say, well, it's not absolutely sure it is the same guy. It may be someone else. But here's someone who's repented, and uh, Paul is saying, welcome him back. Help him, help him be, to be restored. That's the goal. So that's, those are all the things involved with uh, excommunication here. Uh, the reasons to do it. <clears throat> Okay, so the Corinthians haven't done anything, so Paul says, I, I have to act. And, and we'll see that in verses 3 through 5. For I, on my part, though absent in the body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So here is what Paul is going to do about it. Again, he's writing from Ephesus, 
Uh, he's not there physically, uh, but he says, I'm with you in spirit. Now, there's folks who might stay home on Sunday morning to watch a football game or go fishing. And he said, well, I was with you in spirit. Well, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you know, Paul's a little more, <laughs> a little more honest right here. Um, his whole, his mind, his soul, his spirit, was, he was focused on this issue at Corinth. Um, he was trying to evaluate what, what, did, what was happening there, what should be done about it, what could he do about it. Um, you know, it, it does not mean that there's some kind of a spiritual transporter where his spirit was taken up and taken to Corinth and put in the midst of the church there. Um, and there's, looking at the um, different uh, commentaries, there's a little bit of a debate about how, how to take this. Uh, you know, some of them would say, well, you know, the spirit of Christ is in in Paul and also in the church in Corinth and so through Christ's spirit he was there in spirit and and I'm thinking that's kind of stretching things so I can at least say he was focused on this it was very important to him um, and so he was he says he was there in spirit let's look at Colossians chapter 2 verse 5 because we've got almost the same phrase used here Colossians chapter 2, and someone like to read verse 5. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are, and how firm your faith in Christ is. Okay, so he's talking to the Colossians. I'm with you in spirit. Now the circumstances are totally different. He says, I'm rejoicing with you now. Uh, you know, good discipline, stability of your faith. No, I, I'm with you, I care about you, and I'm rejoicing because I, I see how you're doing in Colossae. In Corinth, it was, I'm with you in spirit, but I'm mourning, I'm weeping because you guys are so messed up <laughs> and so much failure. Um, so we have that same term used, but you know, I don't think his Paul's spirit is floating around all the different churches. <laughs> um, let's... Uh, 2 Corinthians. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I think this, to me, this explains, from Paul, even Paul explains what, what he's talking about here. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, someone like to read verses 28 and 29. Okay, so this has been a chapter about all the dangers and pummelings and everything else he's taken on the minute, you know, during his travels, um, just the beatings and the persecutions, and he says, on top of this is my concern, the daily pressure of my concern for the churches, for the believers in the churches. Um, you know, if someone's sinning, I'm concerned about it. If someone's suffering in the church, I know about it and I'm concerned about it. His soul was just wrapped up with what they were going through. And so I think that shows Paul's empathy and compassion and concern. 
for his people. It was intense. So, with Corinth, back to uh, chapter 5. So, after evaluating all the facts available to him, his knowledge of the church, um, Paul issues a judgment. And he says it's, it's just as if he were present with them. So, if he had actually physically been present there, He's saying, I would have come up with the same judgment, with the same command. He knew them. He knew what was going on. He'd gotten enough reports. Um, you know, if he, the fact that he was not there wouldn't change anything. This is what they needed to do, and this is what he would have told them to do if he had been in their midst. And so he orders them uh, that the next time they assemble together as a church to carry out this discipline that he's going to tell them about. <laughs> and there's a lot of qualifiers here. He says, in the name of our Lord, and I am with you in spirit, and, I, and with the power of our Lord Jesus. So he's, again, he's calling upon the, um, not just the, the physical power of the Lord, but the authority of Christ to judge and discipline. Um, He's there in spirit, so they need to respond as if he was standing there telling them to do this. You know, just because I'm not there doesn't mean to ignore me, which, which was part of the problem they already had. Uh, he's, I'm, you know, I expect you to do this. I'm giving you a command. You do this. I may not be there now, but again, as we saw at the end of chapter 4, I'm going to be there soon. <laughs> I'm going to come and make sure you follow up on this. So he gives them this discipline. Um, he has the delegated authority of Christ. And so, uh, again, this authority is mentioned um, in 2 Corinthians. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. So there's kind of a, an issue going on here where They've rejected his authority, but now he has to act with authority and expect them to submit to his authority, even though he's not there to um, enforce it. So you can see kind of, a, there may almost be some frustration there. You know, you're trying to get someone to do something and you're doing it remotely and they've already disobeyed you. And so he's, he's really trying to, Push that. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, would someone like to read verses 2 and 3? I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Okay, so here you see, he's still dealing with this problem. He says, you know, if you're still rejecting my authority, if you're still disobeying, I'm, I'm going to, you know, you're going to have to, I'm going to come and deal with you again. Um, and you'll find out that Christ indeed has authority uh, through me. Uh, in that same chapter, uh, let's look at verse 10. Someone read that for us. 2 Corinthians. Corinthians 13, verse 10. 
For this reason, I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Okay. So he's basically warning them. <laughs> and I think maybe last time we talked about this, you know, like mom with the kids. He says, you better straighten up because when dad gets home, <laughs> he's going to let you have it. <laughs> and so that's kind of what he's doing here. He says, I'm writing to you so that you can straighten out. So when I get there, when I come, I don't have to give you the rod. I don't have to give you a, a spanking. Is this where we parents get the term, I don't want to have to speak to you about this again? <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> and that's what he's doing. Yeah. Exactly. Except you're doing it over the phone from yeah. halfway across the country and they say, uh -huh. you can't hit me over the phone. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and again, especially in that verse 10, he talks about it's, it's, it's Christ's authority and Christ's power that he wielded. Um, and it was for building up not for tearing down. The ultimate goal is restoration here, not, not punishment. So we have in verse 5, the, he also um, gives his, his decision, he, he gives his verdict, and um, what the, the sentence is, the sentencing is, um, and again, it's going to be carried out with the, the power and authority of Jesus by the Corinthian church when they assemble. The offender is to be delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So there's two phrases here. One is, what does it mean to deliver over to Satan? And what does it mean to destroy the flesh? And I think we'll have time to look at the first one. Um, that sounds ominous. I'm going to deliver you over to Satan. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We have that same phrase. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Someone like to read verses 18 through 20. Okay, so we have another example of these two men were handed over to Satan because they were blaspheming God. And I think here what uh, <clears throat> Paul is really telling uh, Timothy is to you know, carry out your, your ministry, um, follow the faith, do the things that I've taught you. And you've got these other two men who are probably teaching false doctrine and leading people astray, uh, and blaspheming against God and Paul says, I've delivered them over to Satan. What on earth does that mean? That's the same idea. Um, it almost sounds like Paul's cursing them to hell, you know. Um, but that contradicts what's, you know, again, what's the goal of all this? Restoration. Right. 
you know, he's not, he, he's not sending them to hell. He wants them to be restored. And in this place, even though it's, it's kind of like an odd s- statement, the, the commentaries are pretty well united on this, that what he's referring to is excommunication. Put them out of the church. Um, and it fits the context. You know, at the end of verse 2, it says uh, that they might be removed from your midst. And then verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So the context is excommunication. The phrase sounds odd. So how, how do these two, how, how does the phrase match up with uh, excommunication? Uh, when we look at the church, we are aliens in this world. This is Satan's world. We are aliens here. Um, let's look at a couple passages that talk about this. First John chapter 5 and verse 19. Someone would like to read that for us. First John 5, 19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, so the world is in the power of the evil one. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1 again. And this time, read verse 13, Colossians 1, 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Okay, so we were in the dominion of darkness. That's Satan's world system. And we looked at Ephesians 2 at the... Um, Memorial service yesterday, you know, you walked according to the power of the prince of the air. You know, we lived in Satan's world, and we, you know, so the world belongs to Satan. Um, but we've been delivered that from that. We've been transferred into uh, Christ's kingdom. So in a sense, getting kicked out of the church is basically getting kicked out of uh, God's world back into Satan's world. Um, you know, we're almost like a little enclave. And I'm trying to think of an example um, of like a tiny island nation or something, or a little uh, nation in the midst of another one. You know, they, they, you know, if you become a, uh, a person that they kick you out of their country, you're kicked out into another country, and then you're under their rules. Um, and what do we have in the church? We have fellowship. You have teachings, protection, encouragement, support, comfort. If they get kicked out of that, they're on their own against the onslaught of Satan. They don't, they don't belong there. They're going to be attacked. Satan hates them. The world hates them. You know, I mean, they tr- may try to blend in, but if they're children of God, they're different. They're going to be persecuted, and they're going to be on their own. Um, so... That's one of the consequences of expulsion. Well, I hear the bell, <laughs> which might mean, okay, time to wrap her up. We're not quite done with, we got some examples from Old Testament and, and, and uh, Gospels about excommunication, but we'll look at those uh, next time. So.
Okay, so, Joe, uh, can I close for us, please? Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for what it speaks to us, living more than it is. We thank you that it gives instruction and gives us encouragement and instruction and the way how we should walk that path. Lord, we thank you for this um, hour, for the next hour to come. Thank you for um, your presence yesterday at the service. We just want to thank you that um, you were honored and that as we go about that we can help in, in many ways, help the Atkinson family as they move on. We thank you for the testimonies. We just pray, Lord, that you'll be with them as they walk. Just give them encouragement and walk with them. Your pressure and your prayer. Amen. Amen.